thank you. Happy to do it with you. <laughs> right, well, we'll move on to the, the first point then. I thought, can't imagine it's a point you really want to be talking about, Kendall, but obviously last night we uh, somehow managed to win 4-1. Very flattering scoreline, but Henry, what's your initial reaction to the game? Uh, as I just said, I can't believe we won 4-1. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit harsh on Newcastle that um, that we scored four, but there, there you go. Kind of, what what can we do? Um, at the end of the day, Ollie seems to pull out results whenever he's under the cosh, and uh, and yet again, he's just. Um, to be honest, with with Newcastle's form and stuff, I say he's pulled out a worldy result. And I don't know how he's done it, um, especially with the team that he started. That's completely baffled me. But um, yeah. Hey ho, he's uh, I wouldn't say he's back, but um, he's certainly improved. Now, Kendall, I'll come to you. Obviously, it must be a frustrating sight from a Newcastle fan. You obviously took the lead very early, and then you you frustrated us for a long parts of the game where you defended, and especially Cole Darlow's performance. So, what are your sort of reactions to the game? Um, yeah, it was massively frustrating to me yesterday what that happened in the last 10 minutes because I just like a 1 1 draw, and well, for us, maybe not, but. In Steve Bruce's mind, that is like a brilliant result. So, um, considering you know everything, the history of like Man United and things like that, um, I mean to be honest though, when you look at it really on paper, we didn't even score a goal. I mean, you scored our goals, so we can't really say that we had um, you know, done anything of any merit yesterday apart from defend. Um, and then obviously when he the game was already set up negatively to defend, that's how Steve Bruce played. That's how he sets up. Um, but then he took when Isaac Hayden got injured, he took him off a shaft, and obviously Shah's a defender, so he's a place in the midfield with a defender. And then I just knew from that point it was just going to be constant on the back foot all the time, playing deep, that which left obviously Saint Maximin to sort of play is like kind of a left wing back, which is what four four two like make him do usually. And obviously yesterday we didn't really set up like that, so I was hoping that Saint Maximin was going to be able to have like you know a channel to be creative and he didn't Um, he ended up playing in the exact same position that he would be if we played for two which was, so it just made no sense Um, so then it just massively frustrated me and then when Carl Dallo obviously got injured and we didn't take him off we instead for some reason put Almiron on um, which who should have been in all fairness should have been on earlier or starting the game Um, unfortunately he came on and we left Carl Dallo on and then an injured keeper is never obviously going to be very good um, addition to the game and it just went downhill from there really Yeah I think I'll build on what you say because you raised two points that I was going to raise anyway I think the injury to the goalkeeper definitely helped us undoubtedly I think Cole Darlow was incredible that game you know take nothing away from De Gea but Cole Darlow sort of swept him under the carpet in terms of performance with the penalty save and a lot of big saves as well and then you know, you, you noticed as soon as he was injured he, he never quite recovered you, kept, you saw him sort of 20 minutes later still hobbling around and I was sort of frustrated we didn't make the most of that because I was thinking we should be popping shots off left, right and centre at this keeper who, at the, at the end, he could barely move, could he? But, yeah, another thing I sort of noticed about Newcastle is the, the threat of Alan St. Maximan was sort of nullified, whether that was your setup or our setup that did that. But he started off really well. You saw with a couple of runs he was doing, he was taking on men left, right and centre. The only way we could stop him was to hack him down and give away a free kick. So, to deal with him as well as we did, uh, whether that was due to our... Uh, good tactics or your poor tactics is is hard to say but yeah it played into our hands a little bit that you brought on that that 
third centre back over Hayden, and then you know we sort of capitalised that. I think Bruno Fernandes finally put in the performance we've been looking for this season because I'll be the first to say he's been poor so far, but he seems to just sort of run things. So yeah. It, a good performance, but you know, still room for improvement. But yeah, I can see from a, a Newcastle point of view that it would be frustrating. Now, Henry, I'll come to you. What? Yeah. You know, we, we spoke with Alex before the game as well, and he was saying, you know, the threat of Callum Wilson and and Alan Saint Maximan yeah. and Ryan Fraser and the like were going to be possibly too much for United to handle looking at our defence. But you know, Harry Maguire put in a, a, a brilliant performance. Victor Lindelof mm. looks solid. Even yeah. Luke Shaw looked okay. So, how did we manage to keep these key players quiet? Well, the key thing for me is uh, is confidence um, more than anything. As as soon as Maguire scored his goal, um, you can see that he's he just his attitude kind of changed. Um, he looked like a different player, and uh, and I'm glad. You know, I know I've been heavily critical of him over the last kind of like a couple of months, maybe even longer. Um, but you know, I, I'll admit when he puts in a good performance, then then he really does look like a top class defender. So um, yeah. In terms of that, it was good to see, and the only the only thing that helped us out was Newcastle's lack of kind of I don't know, lack of cohesion. There seemed to be Joel Linton playing on the right. I don't know what the hell he's doing there, to be honest, um, because he's you know a big strong centre forward. So I don't know what he's doing on the right, and uh, it just yeah it just seemed like a bit of a waste. Um, the front three just didn't kind of in the first half, like the first twenty five minutes, it clicked, but but after that, it was just a bit. I don't know. It's a bit dull. So uh, yeah, but I'm delighted with uh, with the result. And uh, if we can beat a, a side like Newcastle with Fred and McTominay starting, then uh, then maybe we're not doing too bad. Maybe not. Yeah, eyebrows were definitely raised about the selection, and we'll come back to that later. But I'll come to you, Kendall. Now, it was a strange lineup in a, from a Newcastle sort of point of view as well. I think to set up in a what looked like a four four two, playing Jeff Jeff Hendrick out wide from the start by the looks of it, you sort of, you know, you left Ryan Fraser and Miguel Almiron on the bench, which were obvious danger men that we pinpointed before the game. Now, how would you have set up the team differently? Because I know I saw on Twitter, and it's something I want to go back to later as well, that you're not Joel Linton's biggest fan. I think that's fair to say. So, you know, how would you have set that team up differently yesterday? Well, for a start, I would, the sort of front four, you want to call it, I would have set it up sort of 4-2-3-1. So I would have had like, um, Wilson by himself, but then just behind him, St. Maximin, and I would have had Fraser on the left, Miguel Almiron on the right. If Bruce wants to play Hendrick and Joel Linton for some odd reason, I don't really understand that because for me, Hendrick's like a central midfielder. I don't really, he's not a winger, so I don't really understand where the sort of view is that he wants to play him on the right. I just, I don't really get that. Um, however, um, if he wants to play Joel Linton, then he needs to be centrally, and he doesn't need to be like the, a num- in a number nine position. He needs to be played centrally or on the left. So why yesterday he completely was on? I just don't really understand why he played him like on the right. It just made zero sense. He just doesn't. That's not his position whatsoever. And um, we know he's not like in a striker position. So it just seems really strange to me that that's the way he set up yesterday. I personally, as Said would have had Alan St. Maximin just off Wilson centrally, then I would have had Fraser and Almiron because that front four there for me is like the strongest we have, in my opinion. And um, Ryan Fraser is just off the back of a really, really strong Scotland performance, two goals in two games. And um, obviously, we, I understand that he hadn't played like really pr- 
since March in like obviously a game. So I do understand that, but he's fitness is clearly back up. He's played for, as I've just said, it's three games for Scotland and the internationals, scored two goals. So I really don't understand why he didn't start yesterday. That's very confusing to me. Um, confidence on why Shelby started, I know a lot of like Newcastle fans have been a bit iffy with him the past few games. He's had a really couple of bad games um, and we called for him to be dropped at some point. I, I understand why him and Hayden sort of were playing there yesterday. I do get that completely. Um, and as for the back four, I personally, it was LaSalle's first game back after injury yesterday, so I personally wouldn't have played in there. I really don't think that he is our, one of our strongest defenders, despite being the captain. I think it should have been Sean Fernandez from the off. So I would have, as you've, as I've just explained, I probably would have made about five changes to what Bruce had set up the way he did set up. So, um, yeah, a bit of a strange one. I think most Newcastle fans are a bit, you know, confused at the team selection. And then especially to then bring on Miguel Almiron when you've gone two goals down, when it was already only 1-1, one, one, it went 2-1. He brought Miguel Almiron on at 87 minutes. I'm like, there was just no point in doing that whatsoever. Like, you should have just took Cardale off and just give Gillespie a run in. It might have been a bit of a better situation. Um, because at that point, what were you going to do? I just, I really don't understand what the decisions that were made yesterday, a lot of them. Yeah, it was definitely, even from a United point of view, it was sort of confusing mm. to watch what you were doing on the pitch. But just sort of build on one of your points then. You're saying playing St. Maximan in that sort of holding, but not holding, just behind the striker role. Maybe yeah. that would have got the most out of him. But he did have a uncharacteristically quiet game yesterday. Now, you know, he's just signed this big new contract. This was the big game for him to show what he's really all about. You know, he comes in against a, a United side that, you know, they're still a big side, but they're in a bad run of form. This was his game to, to take by the scruff of the neck. Now, do you think he should have done more to impose himself on the game? Or do you believe the system that Bruce played sort of hampered his creative flair and what he could really do on the pitch? I think it's a mixture of both. Because obviously when you have a manager who sets up like defensively and very already negative from this, kickoff like Bruce and um, obviously you're going to struggle as an attacking forward to um do anything however if you are that much of a decent player and you are that creative then you should be sort of taking the game with you and you should be creating the chances where you where the game may not be going forward you should then be taking the game forward so I do think it's a bit of a mix of both um yeah he was massively quiet yesterday he was pretty much non-existent in the mo most of the game I know a lot, a lot of people will argue that he doesn't get the service or um, didn't get the service yesterday, but there were players on the pitch yesterday that could have given that service. And so it's not, yeah, like as I say, it's not, you know, very clean cut. I think it's just, um, I think it's just very a mixture of both, to be honest. Yeah, it was definitely a nice thing from a United point of view to see that, that St Maximum was kept quiet. But, you know, Henry, I'll, I'll come to you. It was a very yeah. confusing lineup from United. It seemed like the manager yeah. had sort of picked formation over personnel. You know, he, he, he picked players mm -hmm. that fit into the formation he wanted to play rather than picked them on form. Obviously, we saw Van der Beek come to the, but that dropped to the bench yet again. Now, you know, I, I'll sort of ask you a, a sort of two pronged question, you know. Sure. Why do you think he set up like that? And then if you were, obviously, we, we got the win, so we can't complain. But if you were Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, how would you set that team up differently? Um, so in terms of why he set the team up like that, I really couldn't tell you. Um, yeah, I thought it was a bit a bit weird. When, when I looked at the starting lineup, I, I didn't look and think, wow, this is fantastic. This game's going to go really well. Um, I thought, 
okay, this this is a problem. And uh, and to be honest, I think United fans, other United fans, would, would have been the same. Um, as soon as you see the kind of Dan James, Juan Mata, McTominay um, and Fred combo, then you know sometimes you could be in for a rough day. So yeah, baffled me completely. I'm I'm stumped as to why he why he played like that. And uh, yeah, tactically. Again, he got it. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer got it spot on yesterday. I don't know. I guess there were certain elements that could have gone against us. Um, that De Gea save was fantastic. I don't think anyone can deny that. And if that goes in, that changes the game again. So, um, yeah, a combination of luck and, yeah, I guess some good tactical knowledge. But that game didn't suggest to me. It didn't scream tactical genius to to me but yeah there you go I'm, I'm to be fair i'm heavily critical but um it's because as a united fan i kind of expect the best but you, you know we've got a 4-1 win so i can't really complain yeah sort of build on your point as well you know the fact that we won so convinced well i say convincingly the scoreline is just convincingly so would say that you know our game plan was perfect but it it sort of went back to the you know you look at all the goals besides the Maguire header Every goal was on the counter-attack, which, you know, it, it played into our hands because Newcastle yeah. were chasing the game. That's the only reason we scored those goals. Now, you come up against the Newcastle side where, you know, it's one, they're winning 1-0 going into the final five minutes. I don't think we score any of those goals. So, there's definitely still, still something to be desired with uh, with Ole's tactics. But, mm. you know, just building on another thing you said, obviously, it was a big, big performances that were very much needed from, you know, the likes of Fernandez, Maguire, De Gea, and even Juan Mata put in a really good performance. Yeah. So, you know, are we starting to see the best of these players or do you think it was just a one-off? And then, you know, just to sort of build on that, do you think Juan Mata still has a place in this team after yesterday or is he still sort of on the way out like everyone thought he was before the game? So in terms of Juan Mata, I've never, ever doubted his ability. I know he has ability. Um, he only he only plays well when he plays in like a 10 role and or kind of a, a floating free roam kind of role, um, which he sort of did yesterday and, and it seemed to work. So, um, so yeah, in terms of in terms of him, I never doubt his quality. Um, but sometimes I think he gets play that position and goes a bit kind of anonymous in games and, and that doesn't help. Um, in terms of seeing the best out of Fernandez and co, um, I just don't think that's the best, you know, that they've got. I think, I think they've got a lot better than that. And, uh, you know, it could have been five with a penalty. I know it was a bit of a, um, I was sat here, sat watching it with my, um, with my housemate and, um, he was saying, "Oh, it's very soft. It pro probably is, but it was a foul nonetheless. So um, it could have been five. Um, but yeah, I don't think we've seen the best of them, and I think we've got a long way to go until we do see the best of them. I'm still not 100% on this manager. That has not changed my opinion of the manager. Um, really, I guess slightly to to suggest the players are playing for them, which um, which they might be, but um, other than that." Yeah, uh, not too much. Yeah, a, a weird one. I think that's all you can say. It did just seem like he's relying on bits of individual brilliance as well. So, you know, like the, the three ball from Bruno Fernandes for the Rashford goal, the build-up for the for the second goal as well with a little back heel from Rashford. So it's a weird one. And I think 
he, he does just seem to pull it out of the bag whenever his job's on the line. But I'll come back over to you then, Kendall. Obviously, it was a, it was a very good start to the season from Newcastle. I don't think anyone can doubt that. They were, they were definitely the surprise package so far, but they just seem to have dropped off recently. So where do you go from here and, and what do you see sort of coming for the rest of the season? Um, I'm really, really worried. We've got Wolves next. We've got um, quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup coming up. Um, so it's just very for a team that doesn't really have squad depth like Newcastle, it's a worrying time because um, we're like a couple of injuries away from being really, really, really in a terrible position. So that's what really worries me, especially when we didn't take um, like use of the we had two loan um, spaces available in our squad. And we didn't make use of them before the window closed a few days ago. So that like really frustrated me. Um, what I want to see now, and I just I highly doubt it because of the teams that. <laughs> um, of the teams that we've got coming up um, we are going to just really struggle to get some points if we don't start attacking the game more um, we just setting up defensively as I've mentioned several times about this whole thing setting up defensively just makes teams not fear us because they know we're very predictable they know that we're going to be on the back foot just waiting to look like for Shelby to lump up a ball to Wilson or try and give it to St Maximum because you can see that when we play teams, they purposely like try and not like I mean not like deliberately fouling, but that's their game plan to take them out of the game and to like eliminate that threat. We're just a very predictable team, um, and if we don't start setting up more attacking league, we're gonna that's gonna be the problem. We're gonna be able to they're just gonna read us, and we're just not gonna gain any points because teams know how to play against us. So I just would like to see just a more attacking lineup in the future and maybe a change in um, the formation in the players that Steve Bruce decided to play. It, it sort of raises a question then, doesn't it? Because obviously, the, I imagine a lot of Newcastle fans are still absolutely gutted about Rafa leaving. So, you know, if do you think if Rafa Benitez was backed in the same way that Steve Bruce has been in the transfer market and, you know, just if, if Steve, well, even if Rafa Benitez had the same set of players that Steve Bruce had, do you think you'd be, well, sort of where do you think you'd be sort of in the, in the league table? Um, I think, to be honest, though, Rafa played very defensively as well. But with Rafa, we knew that we had a solid defence. He coached them well. The players like ourselves, for example, who have completely dropped off under Steve Bruce. He it just looked half the player that he used to be. We used to rely on him so much for certain things. Shelby's, I mean, Shelby wasn't even like a regular start under Rafa Benitez. Rafa Benitez wasn't keen on him. I think it was sort of the inconsistent element of his play. So with Rafa, though, we trusted him more. We trusted his tactics more. He knew how to counter-attack, whereas it's this this current team, I really don't think do. And they worry me massively for that. Um, I wouldn't care. Under Steve Bruce, we've signed a few quality players that we didn't have under Rafa Benitez. So I think with this team, Rafa could do so much more. And I hate... A lot of us do it, a lot of fans, like Newcastle fans do it, and I hate being the one to be like, oh, Steve Bruce compared to Rafa, because I don't even think they're remotely on the same level. I don't think Steve Bruce is anywhere near on the level of Rafa, of Rafa Benitez. Like, I feel like he needs to be compared to, like, not even, I don't even think he was as decent as Alan Pardew. I think he needs to be compared to, someone like, Steve McLaren, to be honest, the way that we're going. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think Rafa would have got more out of the players and he would have been able to coach players, um, like, Wilson, obviously, for example, um, I don't really know how Joe Linton would handle that Rafa Benitez. And to be quite honest, I don't think he'd be regular start under Rafa Benitez. It sort of begs the question then. Obviously, he 
Steve Bruce did sort of what was expected of him last season. He kept Newcastle up, even despite you know the sort of money that was spent on the team. But you know, going into this season, even despite the the good start that you've had, do you think a switch of manager is needed to really take Newcastle to that next level? The problem is with switching a manager in the sort of situation that Newcastle are currently in is I'm, I'm not entirely sure who would want to come. Um, Steve Bruce was actually 12th choice manager to come. And if I'm honest, I think he probably approached Newcastle to take the job. Um, so they're already Steve Bruce's 12th choice. If they're looking at things now and thinking, oh dear, like that team's just not looking good, it's, it's going to be even worse. I think the only like sort of manager who's out of the job currently who we have a chance of um sort of getting in is Eddie Howe. Um and I wouldn't be against that at all. I know obviously people will think oh he got Brighton relegated Brighton bombs get relegated but it it wasn't really about that. He didn't have a lot of money spent as well and he was just very comfortable for a lot of years. But I think with a squad like where he's linking up with Fraser and Wilson who he used to have at Bournemouth um, obviously Matt Ritchie, I know Matt Ritchie doesn't start a lot, but that sort of maybe his mentality might be good. Um, and we, we all know he is a pretty well-drilled manager. So I don't really know if changing the manager right now is the right thing to do if we can't get another good quality manager in. If we're just going to have another Steve Bruce type manager, there's just no point because we're going to be in the same position. So... Um, well, I'm I'm going to give him a couple more games, two, three, max, see how he sets up in the next couple of games. Obviously, as I said, we've got Wolves next. Um, so I'll give him a couple more games. And if by Christmas, like nothing's changed, Christmas is a crucial, crucial time for the Premier League. You start seeing um, people step away at the top of the league and people at the bottom. So Christmas is going to be absolutely crucial. And if this continues for the next three games, this defensive, horrible display, I, like honestly, it needs to, it needs to go. That's fair enough. Yeah, I think I think that United fans are sort of feeling similar with Ole, aren't they? At the minute, I think it's hard to say he deserves to go, but I think quite a few fans now want to see him go. But you know, just to sort of round off this segment, we 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 spoke about it before the game as well. Obviously, United and what well, Manchester United and Newcastle United, I think it's fair to say, have two of the worst owners in the league. Now, Henry, I don't know if you want to want to join in on this, but I sort of going to pit you against each other again and sort of argue. Well, I, first of all, I'll, I'll come to you for first, Kendall, just to sort of see what your opinions of Mike Ashley are and, you know, the potential takeover and stuff like that. Um, well, like we have been suffering for a long time under Mike Ashley. I think it was only maybe the first two or three years that he even showed any interest in the club. I don't even, I don't know why as a business owner, you would take on such a massive project like a football team and treat it the way that he has it just seems bizarre to me because surely you'd want to make that business turn over as much profit you wouldn't want it to be a yo-yo team um you would like you would do you know what i mean so um sorry one second um yeah sorry about that um <laughs> so it's a bit of a funny one and then when we got the takeover we were so so looking forward to having an owner who actually cared who invested money into the club he wanted to invest money into the outside area and the city, which is amazing because, as we all know, Newcastle is a one-team city. So that would be massive. It would be a massive project. And then for it all to fail, right, the final hurdle was just such a kick in the teeth for us. I think the, it's completely the hope that kills you because every single year we were looking at a potential takeover and it never really 
got off the ground. It was sort of a new story, and that was that. But this time, things actually were going ahead. We saw more um, communication from the parties that were involved, and then it sort of failed at the final hurdle. So it is a massive shame for a club like Newcastle United to be under that sort of ownership because it, I don't think the, the club, the fans deserve it at all. Um, and then I see people complaining. Um, I'm just going to use, obviously, Man United as an example just because we're doing this sort of podcast. But obviously, Man United fans complaining that their owners are horrible. And I just think we have spent so minimally in the last few years. In the last 10 years, our net spend is so, so minor. And then you've got people like Man United fans, for example, complaining that they don't get this, don't get that. And I just, like, you've got to look at the bigger picture in some respect. There's way worse clubs running the Newcastle, don't get me wrong. And I know it's hard to look at the bigger picture when you um, are under like very bad ownership because you just care about your club, you just care about what's going on in your club. And I'm not denying that the Glazers aren't, they're not good for to run a football club. They are very, very, very bad runners of a football club. But there has been money injected into a Man United team. So I just think there's different pros and cons for different things, but no, um, we are desperate for a takeover, and if a takeover doesn't happen in the next this season, I think we're going to be we're going to probably go on a downward spiral. If I'm honest, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of come to you, Henry. Then this is where the sort of uh, yeah. sort of battle, if you like, commences. So I think you raised the point, Kendall, that you know United do spend a lot of money, and I think mm-hmm. United fans do overlook that. We spend as much as we complain, we do spend more than most teams. Yeah. But I think, Henry, do you want to just sort of go into exactly why United hate their owners so much? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit obvious, to be honest, as to why we actually hate the owners. Um, they're, they're owners that take money out of the club. They don't actually put any in themselves. Um, they're very selfish people and they don't ever talk to the fans about the club. Um, there's no communication there whatsoever. There's no, um, yeah, they just don't really care to be honest. They'd rather um, sit in their houses in America and and kind of, you know, not even run it from there, just divert it over to other people. So, and and yeah, they just take money out of the club. Um, in terms of saying that United fans, you know, shouldn't complain as much. I think the reason why we complain is because, and this is not this is not an arrogance thing, is that you know, with respect, United are one of the top three biggest clubs in the world, according to the amount of revenue we make. Um, so, and I don't think that's um, unfair to say that. I, it's just fact at the end of the day. So um, we expect to be in the top, um, you know, regarding our revenue as to where we are playing on the pitch and, and how, how good we are um, on the pitch and, and as a club. So I think you've got to correlate how much you make to to where you should be. Um, I think the anomaly in that is probably Man City because obviously they've got owners that just spend a ton of money and, and you know, that's fair enough. That's what they want to do. Um, Liverpool make a lot of money and um, they don't spend a hell of a lot, but they're very efficient. Um, Chelsea make a fair amount of money, not a hell of a lot, but, you know, the places correlate to, to how much money you make usually. And uh, the only real kind of the weird one is United because we're we're nowhere near the level that we should be at considering the money that we make every year. So, just one sort of final point to round it off, then, Kendall. I'd, I'm not sure if you mentioned it in in the sort of in the when you were speaking because you, your connection was 
a little bit off. But you know, the, the potential takeover in the summer from the I think Saudi Arabian businessmen now. While that would have given Newcastle a, you know, obviously a lot more money, and it would have been a project for the whole city. Do you think, you know, ethically behind the scenes, fans could really get behind new owners, especially with you know sort of what goes on back at home? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's the problem. We all knew that Mike was the most willing to sell that than he's ever ever been. Um, so that's why we could see the project, we could see the plan with the new owners. They had set plans for city, they set plans for the ground, they set plans for the whole club in general. So that's it was just a massive kick in the teeth for us not to get that when it had gone so far and we could have had the potential to be, you know, battling for a really good place in the league this year if we had um like undergone the takeover. So it's just it's frustrating to know that you've got another season under Mike Ashley. Um you've got another season under a manager like Bruce playing the football that we do on paper our squad's not a bad squad at all it's not I mean it's I wouldn't say it's a great squad but it's a pretty decent squad there's some decent and um, ones that shine out there like obviously Alan J. Laxman so we have got a decent squad there's just no reason why we should be playing the way we should not we should have been um ran the way we have for the past 10 plus years Sorry, just technical difficulty there. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, in the comments, people that are watching, just Glazers or Mike Ashley, who's the worst owner for whenever you watch this? I just want to just want to find out the audience, um, audience opinion. There we go. Um, but we want to move on then to the, to the next section of the show now. Kendall, you're obviously a big presence on Twitter. You've got you know over four thousand followers. You're doing very well for yourself, but you, there's obviously a big issue with. with you know, the treatment of women within the sort of football Twitter community. Now, do you want to just sort of start us off by giving us a rough outline of sort of the problems that women face on Twitter every day? I think it's mostly the the offensive part to me is that they think that my opinion on football is like worth way, way less than a male's opinion on football. That's what I find frustrating. And as well, when I sort of give my knowledge on football or whenever I'm on a podcast or whenever I write tweets, anything like that, People, like males especially um but it's not always males but males especially will always be like oh so you actually really do know football it's like a surprise to them that I really do know football but if they genuinely knew me they knew that I had followed football since I was very 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 young my whole family's been involved in football since I was born since way before I was born and my granddad was like physio for England in the like 1970s so my family has been involved in football forever and I've been involved in football from grassroots level up to Premier League level, so I my knowledge of football in general is is quite vast just because of the experience that I've had. So I just find it really like so annoying when they're like, "Oh, so I can't believe that you know football because I am a woman." It's just it's bizarre. And then I find that people will use you know my football opinions to attack either my gender, my appearance. They just sort of pick on any tiny little thing to make it about me not knowing football because I'm a woman. It's just a really strange situation. Don't get me wrong, the past couple of months especially, I've seen a massive difference. I've seen more female-led pod, uh, football podcasts coming on board. Um, obviously, as this probably last year, this wouldn't have been a, a common occurrence to have a female on a male podcast. It just wouldn't have. So this year has been a really, really massive rise, especially with people like Alex Scott getting big, um, you know, presenting jobs and football jobs. So 
the infuriating part that like my opinion left less just because I'm a woman, but I watch exactly the same games that men do. I see the same stats men do. I am not watching a completely different screen because I'm a woman. So there's no reason why a lady's um opinion should be of any less weight than a male's just because they are women. But I do understand that it is a male dominated sport, but it's nice to see more women, you know, coming up in this sport because that's where the change is gonna arise and that's where it's gonna stem from. Yeah, yeah, just to just to go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, we mentioned your, your distaste for Joel Linton and I saw a tweet that you, you put out today where you, you sort of criticised him and you got quite a bit of backlash from it. So sort of how much is that a regular occurrence for you? And and do you think that's mainly based on your gender? Because I think the things you were saying about Joel Linton was spot on. Do you think people just sort of pick an argument with what you're saying just purely because, you know, you're not male? Uh, yeah, a lot of the time. Time. I don't think, don't get us wrong, a lot of the time it's not, it's just because people want to argue with me and they want to try and find a loophole in the fact that I am a fan, they want to try and make out because I have started appearing on podcasts and doing YouTube and things like that, I've been called a social media fan a lot in the past, like sort of three months I would say since I started doing podcasts and it's just simply not true at all and if, as I said, if they had watched any of my YouTube stuff, if they watched any, any time that I'm on a podcast, they would know that I actually genuinely appreciate football and I have been a season ticket holder for 14 years at Newcastle United at home games so I have seen pretty ev- nearly every single home game for Newcastle for the past 14 years since 2006 so I do know what I'm talking about um, and I do know what the deal is so I don't really understand why it becomes a sort of attack on me personally because that's what happens they use my football and opinion they disagree with it and then they try and like sort of depreciate the level of football fan that I am which is just really strange to me um so that's what I don't really understand but I'm I'm really happy to um argue with people <laughs> that's fair enough we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a break Henry do you do you think you know just sort of looking from an outside point of view that you know within especially within the media uh, there's sort of a preferential treatment towards men obviously it's very easy for me and you to sort of appear appear on a you know football podcast or something like that you don't tend to see many women despite the fact that there's more and more women on social media being active about football do you think do you think there's still a big problem with gender in that way there's there's a massive problem and uh, and it goes the same with a lot of a lot of things but but gender seems to be one that persists for for the longest and uh and it's increasingly more frustrating, um, but we're starting to see a little bit of a twist now, which is good. Um, more female pundits. Um, and I don't know why people think that women have to prove their knowledge of football, because at the end of the day, what's the difference between a, a, a man and a woman watching the same game? I, don't, I just don't understand. So, um, yeah, th- th- there seems to be a bit of a shift now, which is good. But I think it's come way too late, to be honest. Um, and it only came because of loads of other issues being brought up about, um, you know, different things. So, um, yeah, all in all, it's been frustrating to see. But we're finally starting to get there. And um, that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. Now, Kendall, you're obviously on uh, an all-woman uh, sort of show, for, for, uh, Newcastle-based sort of thing. So, 
how important are those sort of shows to raising the profile of women on social media and their opinions within football? I've seen a massive shift even just since I started doing that podcast since July because um, I used to get attacked a lot on Twitter even before I started doing podcasts for my football, football and opinions and um, it used to, you know, really affect me. But since I started doing the podcast, the attitude towards not just me but um, a lot of women in the industry and who I see on social media has completely changed. So I feel more, it is needed like more because that's when people you know look and think oh actually she she really is knowledgeable about football there's really no point in me attacking female females for their football and opinion because they do know as much as us um and i want that element of surprise to be gone because it's just sort of that's where you get the attitude you can tell sense the attitude that a women's opinion is you know way more way worth less than a male's opinion but they must to be important um most of the comments now i would say probably 95 percent of comments that I get on either YouTube or Twitter or whatever are positive um, and I get a lot of comments from and messages from men who say I'm not being disrespectful but you really do know your, your football knowledge and I'm really glad that I've watched you because it's completely changed my opinion on how women see football so um, yeah it's, it's a really good move and I think we need to see more of it and that's why I'm so interested in getting and involved in so many different podcasts and especially female-led podcasts because it'll just, as I said, the more you do, the more people's attitudes will change. Yeah, it's a good point you raise. There's a definite shift, whether that's on social media or mainstream media. We've obviously seen Alex Scott's doing very well for herself now. And, you know, even like fan channels that I contribute to, they're getting more and more female contributors in all the time. So that it's definitely heading in the right direction. But, you know, we're far from in the clear yet. I think that's fair to say. So what do you think needs to be done sort of extra to get women on more of a level level playing field if not you know completely completely equal just more visibility as i've said the more women that appear on podcasts the more obviously we all know social media is a massive catapult into the industry now into opinions and you know the sort of sport and element of things so just more visibility would be huge like this whole the, the um, panel that i'm on football terrace is the first for the football terrace and that is such a massive platform um, it just needs to happen more. We need more female presenters like Alex Scott to come on board with bigger corporations. Because as I say, the more recognition that women get within um, the male element of football, the more people will appreciate them and understand their decisions and the divide won't be as strong. Um, but I mean, even in terms of women's football, the game isn't at the level where men, the men's games are. It is getting a lot better, the, especially the international women's element of football is getting a lot stronger and a lot more um, viewed. But the women's game is not even at a certain level, so I guess that's probably where a lot of the sort of um, stigma stems from because you see that males sort of dominate in the male industry. But as I say, just more visibility, more appearances on different things. Um, if the media side of football is what you want to go down, then I would encourage any female to start it up and, you know, get set up. Um, the women that I do all the podcasts with, there's, there's like eight of us. So I do four on a Monday night with the Newcastle one. Um, and there's another three girls who do the football first on the Friday with me. So there's eight amazing women who completely know their football. And I really um, hope that it just continues from there and we can sort of see a more male and female-led, um, you know, podcast things like that it would just be great to see and that would help a lot 
Yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting to see that, you know, a lot of women, it's getting to a point where quite a lot of women are more knowledgeable than the men that are, that are criticising them for their football opinions, which, you know, in a, in a, it's quite nice to watch from a sort of outsider point of view. Now, you sort of brought up a point I was going to make as well about women's football. Now, do you think, well, that's obviously emerging massively now, obviously the, the recent World Cup helped that as well. And you're seeing, you know, just sort of close to home for, for me and Henry, obviously United, Manchester United signed two American uh, footballers who both were part of the World Cup winning team. Now, do you think the, re the sort of upward trajectory that the women's game is taking is having a knock-on effect with, you know, women all across sports, whether that's playing or presenting or within the media or, you know, all sorts of things? I think it's definitely helping because I know that the in the first week that those female signed for Manchester United, their shirt sales actually exceeded any of the male shirt sales in the first three weeks. So that's like brilliant. There we go. There's just something that I saw. It's been so minimal as a shirt sale, but it is just showing that women are becoming more appreciated in the women's football industry. Um, it's just it's a fantastic move to sign, you know, bigger name players. Um and get more visibility in England because I do feel that in sort of countries such as the USA for example women's football is appreciated a little bit more and it goes to show because the women's um, football team in the USA are so so good um, the whole you know equal sorry that was <laughs> it's causing so much drama today um, the FA you know taking equal care for men and women that was fantastic fantastic um, step in the industry for certain things so um, I'm so so grateful for that and hopefully it can just continue. I think we need to get your cat on the podcast next clearly wants to be involved but um, you know you mentioned that sort of the, the stature of the women's game in America now we've obviously seen recently that you know t big teams like Liverpool have, have massively underfunded the women's team and that's caused them to be relegated because you know they just can't compete with the big teams such as Arsenal, Chelsea and Man City sort of financially now. I think it's fair to say that, that, you know, the problems have to be solved from the top before they can be solved from the bottom. So how do you get teams like Liverpool to start, you know, taking women's football seriously if, and then, you know, expect everyone else to take it seriously if, if even the people at the top aren't? Yeah, that, that's where the issue lies. Because obviously, as you say, people who are um, big movers in football don't really take the women's game seriously. It's just got to take a team like Manchester United, for example. It's got to take a big voice in the sport to start taking the whole women's element of football seriously before, you know, people latch on, which is it's quite sad because surely you'd want to be the one who made ways in the industry and who made a change and looked to be the most progressive team. Um, I think it was good. If, I think it was maybe last year that the West Ham women's documentary was aired um, and that was fantastic because a lot of the players from that sort of got well known from that and got more appreciated from that and it's um I know Jilly Slackety who is the um captain of the West Ham women's team she's bringing out like a mental health documentary as well so just more um sort of recognition in the industry more things getting involved with that's just going to make you know big sort of people involved in football take it more seriously and decide that a really good thing to do is to focus on the women's side of football because even for example social media and um, we spoke about this on one of our my like one of my podcasts a few weeks ago and we said that the difference in the men's social media following and the comments on the men's social media compared to the women's 
because we saw a focus like solely focused on Newcastle United women. We've only got a couple of like maybe a couple of thousand followers, if that. Um, whereas the men's team were like they've got massive you're on like a million. So it's just it's crazy the difference. You can just see it so so clearly the difference. Um, and the sooner the better that the big the big deals within football take it more seriously. That's when it's gonna catapult and start um you know, sort of a domino effect and other teams are going to start taking it seriously. So it's nice to see that Manchester United putting news out like about things like the shirts and hopefully other clubs can just follow suit. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I think the, the upward trajectory is definitely... what What's the word? Well, it, it's, it's definitely something that is good for the game. I think, you know, just to put it pretty dumbly. But, you know... The, it's, it's it's an interesting topic that we could talk about for for hours, but I think we're ju- we're just starting to run out of time. So, if, unless you've got anything to add, Henry, I was just going to say that um, that I'm finally kind of glad to see that um, that there's more appreciation for for women, women in the game. Um, obviously, there's been criticism for the standard of football, but they're getting games are getting televised more now, and obviously, more money's been pumped into the game. So. Um, yeah, we, we, we need to see improvements for sure. There needs to be, um, you know, encouragement for, for crowds to to go and watch these games and encouragement from, um, you know, Sky and BT and the BBC to, to keep pushing these games forward. Um, we saw the crowd that England managed to attract, I think it was last year um, in uh, at Wembley. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's important and, you know, the more that happens, the better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can't, I can't help but agree with you. But, you know, on that note, we'll, we'll we'll end it there. So, Kendall, thank you so much for joining us. You've been a massive help. It's been really interesting to talk to you as well. Thank um, you for having yeah, me. Oh, sorry about all this. The distractions. Right. My cat right. decided to kick off today. I was sitting on the floor. <laughs> I don't know what it's happened. But, yeah, I'm so sorry about that. But it's been amazing, the podcast today. So, thank you for having me on. It's definitely been one of the more interesting ones, thanks to your cat. But um, yeah, if you if you haven't, then check Kendall out on Twitter. She does some really, really great things, especially with the panel shows. So I've left a link to her Twitter down in the description. But, you know, Henry, thank you as ever for joining me. No problem. And, you know, thank you for everyone for watching. We'll see you next time. <laughs>